Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the safekeeping in the storms. Thank you for giving us children to minister to. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we're in heaven with you. Until then, please lead and guide us as we go forward. In your name, amen. Well, as I was telling a couple of you, in the last year, two years, my husband and I have been to China three times on children's ministry trips. Just, and they would move us all around the country. We're going, well, why don't we just stay here? The first place we went to, there were, we drove in, we, we land. We land in China. I don't know where we're going to be. We just, we're headed to China. I don't understand any names. I don't know where anything is, but somebody's going to meet us in China. And so we land, and there was another lady with us. And I, going through customs and immigration, thinking, we didn't send a picture of us ahead of time. How are they going to know who we are? And then I look around and realize we are the only people who look like us. There is nobody else who looks anything like us. In, in China, I'm considered a blonde. And um, we go walking out through the doors, and now we're in China. We can't get back in the plane and go home. And there are three young men who are waving, and we figured that was for us. And so we went over, and, and one of them spoke English. And yes, he was there. We were going to get us and all of our luggage for two weeks into a van. And it was about a two-hour trip to where we were going to stay. Okay, where are we going to stay? Oh, you're going to stay at the church. Okay, we don't know what we're doing. We're just going. And we get in the van, and the person who speaks some English starts walking away. Whoa, whoa, wait. He lives in the city. He just came to make sure that we got connected with the people who were taking us to the church. And it's the middle of the night, and it's pouring rain, and we're in a van going through the fog, and I start to think... Uh, Lord, what did we get ourselves into? And these people could do anything. I mean, we don't know where we are. We can't, we don't know where we're going. All we did was tell our children and parents we're going to China. That was it. We weren't, we weren't sure the name of the place we were flying into or anything. They just knew that we were in China for two weeks and they had to take care of the dog. And two hours down the road, I'm going, they could take us anywhere. We could disappear forever, you know. And you start getting a little panicky at 2 o'clock in the morning when you've been flying and traveling for 24 hours. And they started slowing down, and it looked very remote. There weren't very many lights on. We'd been going through cities. And we turned off and went through a big gate, and I thought, I don't know where I am. And then we drove down a dark alley, and I'm getting more and more nervous. And then it stops, and I thought, all right, now if anything's going to happen, it's going to be now. And I looked out the van window and saw the most beautiful sight in the world. It was our Seventh-day Adventist Church logo. I thought, oh, I'm home. I'm okay. I'm in a foreign country, but I know that sign. And, and it, was, it was a wonderful experience. We were teaching them about how to do children's Sabbath school. Because as I told you, for 60 years they had been in hiding. They couldn't be out in the public doing Sabbath school. And so um, we had this amazing experience. We actually, in, in China, their churches frequently have guest rooms. 
And so we were in two of the guest rooms. And then they brought people in from all over the state. They call it a province. All the churches in the province came to see these Americans who are going to tell them that, yes, children can learn the Bible and they can learn about Jesus. And I was so astonished that somebody thought children couldn't do that. And as my husband and I demonstrated with another lady, Martha, um, how to do beginner Sabbath school, how to do kindergarten primary, how to do junior and early teen, the people were so excited and so interested in what was happening. And they just wanted more and more. And they ended up sending us then um, two hours by plane to another city to do the same thing and then three hours by plane to another city to do the same thing and we thought why are you moving us around so much well lo and behold we were illegal <laughs> we weren't supposed to be there sharing those kind of things that was not allowed so uh we were just glad we found that out just before we left and not but on our second trip there they took us up near russia and north korea and there is even more remote. And they actually kept us hidden in the church and wouldn't let us come out if anybody who wasn't a member that they knew wasn't there. And then on Sunday, 200 people are there to find out about Children's Sabbath School. And um, we actually did end up having to go into hiding in a couple places. And uh, they've one place they wouldn't even put a mic on me because they, they would just do the translator because they didn't want anybody to hear English. So, oh, that was all very exciting. Those things still happen even in this day and age. Last summer I was actually able to go and teach teachers um, for Chinese Union Mission. And part of what you're gonna see is some of what I was sharing with them. And they have what they call homeschools where they will board uh, seventh, eighth, and ninth graders, maybe 20, 25. And it's a boarding school for these children because the parents say, if we put the children into the public school, we will lose them for eternity. Every time, they, they've, they've seen it enough because the schools teach religion and the religion is money. And so money becomes your God and you don't want to have anything to do with what else is going on. And so they're saying th there's this huge hunger and thirst, but after ninth grade, these kids can no longer go to school. They're not allowed to go to university. They're not allowed to go to high school because they've been in a church school. Mm -hmm. And even some of the church schools, the kids know where to run to hide when the inspector comes once a week because those aren't allowed either. But there's such a tremendous thirst and, and hunger for knowing about Jesus and training the children about Jesus, that um, the next year I'm not gonna be the principal at Greater Lansing Adventist School. I'm going to be working on things for some of those churches in China that are hungering and thirsting so much for the love of Christ for their children. And one of their big questions was, how do we manage children? And so I'm gonna be talking to you as parents as Sabbath school leaders, as church school leaders, because the principles apply all the way across the board. We're gonna look at three things. I call these the three R's. We're looking at the roles, the routines, and the relationships. These are the three things. Roles, routines, and relationships are what gets you 
um, having a fantastic time with whatever children that you're dealing with. The two children that I was showing a picture of, my grandchildren, about a year ago, and, and I've been doing seminars like this since my children were his age. And so the boys always had to sit in on, on because we do frequent Sabbath afternoons, and, and the boys would have to sit, I have two sons, and listen. And if they heard me tell a story about them, they got ice cream for supper Sabbath evening because we just, we really didn't do ice cream much. But if mom talked about them, then they got to have ice cream. And, um, but they did listen. And a couple years ago, when the little girl was about one years old, my, my son said, uh, you know, mom used to talk about the importance of routines. Maybe we need to start some routines with her and I'll tell you a little bit about that when we get to that point. But let's take a look at the roles. What is your role as a parent, as a Sabbath school leader, as a school teacher? Are you doing all the work until all hours of the night? And if you have one like this, I guarantee you are because you're probably up most nights. Um, I asked my daughter-in-law with the five-year-old, what's the longest stretch of sleep she gets? And it's about four hours, the five-month-old. And um, teachers, we end up being at work constantly. And it's kind of weird giving up those 14-hour days, but I'm going to be okay with that. And natural teachers work hard at disciplined management. And that would be natural parents, natural Sabbath school teachers. You're going to, if you have that gift, this doesn't seem like a big issue. Well, I, of course you do this, or of course you do that. But people who don't have, their gift is something else. They are, they're gifted in a different way. We're going to go through some of the steps that are going to help you. A natural teacher or a natural parent is going to be very relaxed, not uptight when the when things happen, and um, emotionally warm. You can all, probably all think in your mind right now, your favorite teacher, who get a mental image of your favorite teacher, and you're probably going to see that they were a very warm person, very welcoming. Um, I, I never hugged any of my teachers. Academy graduation, they all hugged me, but I was not the hugger of everybody. So I'm always surprised when my students will hug me, and it's wonderful. And if you're not a hugger, you know, I went through years of, of teacher training where you're not supposed to touch a child. You know, hands off, and you can do appropriate pat on the back. And so you're just not supposed to hug them, you're not supposed to touch them, you're not supposed to pat their hand. And my first year of teaching, I was in grades, I had grades one through four, and I had a fabulous teacher's aide who came right out of the daycare system, and she hugged them all the time, and they sat on her lap, and I thought, this is not fair. How come you get to do all the hugging, and I'm supposed to not, you know, have any physical contact? So the older I got, the more I realized that uh, the appropriateness and the deep, deep need. And you can tell if a kid doesn't want to be hugged or patted or touched. You know, they're going to give you the signals. But the other ones are going to lean into you and they're going to um, 
my little stain up here is my, my granddaughter who wanted to just snuggle at lunch. Okay, that not, not a problem whatsoever. But you're, you're going to have littler kids who are going to want to do that with you too. They're going to want to be close to you. They're going to want to get to pat you. They're going to want you to hug them. And so look at what's appropriate in the role that you have. Now, if you're a parent, you're going to be hugging them and kissing them and all the time. It's nonstop. But for, for those of us who don't get to do that all the time, watch your child, the child's body reaction as to what kind of emotional or physical contact you're going to have with them. And women um, get to do a little bit more. Men, kids are a little bit more reserved about that. I watched my husband and the granddaughter just keeps throwing herself on top of him, piling on him, over the top of him. And so it's just like having the boys back being little again. But kids need physical contact and we just have to look at appropriate ways to make that happen. So your role as a teacher or a parent um, has lots of different steps. But look for ways that don't involve you being the one doing everything. And think for a minute about who's in charge of your life. Now the five-month-old grandson is, is pretty much in charge of a lot of things. His mother's schedule for one. His two-and-a-half-year-old sister is in charge of a lot of things. But their mom and dad are there, and there's no doubt in the child's mind that who's in charge of them. And when it's not mom and dad, it's grandmother and granddaddy. And, you know, we work on obedience. And, you know, you've, a couple of you who have people who are through the t terrible twos know that life gets brighter on the other side. And just wait until they're four. Threes are worse. Four. Yeah. Four was fabulous. You, you were saying what? Oh, no. Well, don't tell my daughter-in-law that. I, all I know is when they hit four, they seem to turn a corner and just be delightful. <laughs> so, um, but, but no matter what role you're in, whether it's parent, teacher, Sabbath school teacher, make sure the ones, that you're the one in control of your life, not the children. Children are longing for somebody smarter than them to make their decisions. They're going to fight you for it. I just got done teaching ninth and 10th graders. But because they'd had me on and off for different classes for six years, there was never a doubt who was the one in charge. They might ask, uh, what are we going to do next? We just took a big trip to Mackinac Island. I like your shirt. And um, it wasn't a, can we do this? Can we do that? It was well, what are we going to do first? So, well, I'm going to let you visit the subs, the um, fudge so shops first. I know that's your highest priority. <laughs> so once we got that out of the way, they could calm down. And then, well, what's next? I said, well, I know ice cream's high on your list, so we'll visit the ice cream shop next. So then it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we get to go do the things I want to do. So we went and visited the fort, and we took them on a bike ride all around the island after all that fudge and ice cream. They needed it. <laughs> and took them out for a nice supper um, at a restaurant. And I had said, you know, we are Seventh-day Adventists. I, you know, you may be meat eaters at home, but when we go out as a group, we don't 
eat meat. We don't drink soda pop. I'm not saying any of that's wrong or bad, but as a group, we're going to reflect what we're teaching. Nobody argued with me, but they'd had me for several years, and they knew that this was the way, and they knew that I was in charge, and they did an excellent job of ordering. We're not going to tell their parents what they got because um, it was not the most balanced meal, but I knew that, you know, they're teenagers, they'll survive. And um, just all the things we did, I want, we went up to the locks. I want to see the big ships. So they all came up and watched ships with me. We're going to go for a boat ride through the locks. You know, they, weren't, they didn't get to make a lot of choices, but they were willing because they knew I had their best interest at heart. And that's what you want to make sure your children know. You have their best interest at heart. And that's where the relationships come in. It's over time. The first couple of years, I was the principal, and I was saying there's no meat on when we go out in public. If we're going back from Lyft and we stop at Taco Bell, you're not getting anything with meat on it. Oh, they were so upset, but I could have chicken at home. Okay, chicken. If I buy it myself, that's fine, but you're not with me. If you're going to travel with me, you're going to follow the, the best of our health principles. And so... But it was over time in the building of that relationship and explaining why it is we believe what we believe and why we do what we do, do that it became a no-argument issue. And that's what I would like for you to remember is you need to be in charge. You need to know what it is you're going to do. And I had talked these through with the kids ahead of time. But it's mostly you have to be the salesman. They wanted to go down to see the Ark down in Kentucky, which, yes, I would love to do that, except the 10th graders had already been down to the um, Creation Museum, and that's a trip where you do both of those things, and they had been to the Creation Museum twice. So I said, next year, see if you can't go next year, because then you know, it'll be new for everybody. Let's go up north. I would love to go to Mackinac Island. really didn't want to drive in all that traffic, you know? And I told them that, but it, because of the relationship, because they trusted me, because I explained to them why we were doing what we were going to do, why are we riding the bikes around the island? Because I want to. Oh, you know, and you can do some things that are just that simple as, why do I have to go to bed now? Well, because that's when I want you to go to bed. And then you can explain to them, because if you don't get enough sleep, then you get sick, then you're crabby. Um, explain to them all the reasons that you might want them to go to bed. Not that, you know, because if you go to bed, I can eat donuts, you know. <laughs> um, that probably is not going to work real well. But if you sit down, and, and I am just amazed. My daughter-in-law explains things to my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter in great length. And I think... She's been doing this since she was that age. And how is she understanding this? But she understands a phenomenal amount. And her mother explains over and over why it is, I'm learning so many things, why it is that she needs to do some of the things she needs to do. So be in charge of the life, build that relationships, and then incorporate routines. And we want to avoid the learned helplessness in children. And I don't care whether it's school, Sabbath school, or home, 
our children can learn to be helpless if we let them. And as a grandmother, I have to be really careful because I could be training them to be helpless. Because I want to do, you know, they call me, oh, I'm so glad you called me and come running. And mother is over there saying, you know, you need to go to grandmother, not make her always come to you. And you need to ask politely, and I'm just glad she's asking. So we need to help not train our children to be helpless. And that's important no matter what children you're dealing with. And routines are a fabulous way to make this happen. So my son is having trouble getting the two-year-old to bed, or one-year-old at that point. And he says to his wife, we need to have some routines. I remember mom talking a lot about routines. In fact, mom used to talk about bedtime routines because that's when they were battling with her. Mom used to say, you have worship, um, you have bath time, you have snuggle book time, and then go to sleep. Let's start this routine. And they have had that routine ever since, and they try to stay on it as much as possible. That at, there's a, at 8 o'clock or 7.30, they're starting to, to have family worship, and they're getting her through. And the battles for bedtime ended. Now, that doesn't mean she went to sleep. She's just like her dad and lays in bed for a couple hours before going to sleep. But she learned that there's no fighting. Once, once you have worship, then you have bath. Once you have bath, you get snuggles and stories. Once you get snuggles and stories, you go to bed. That's it. You can cry and holler all you want, but the day is over. Your, your special time with mom and dad is over. And, and it worked. He said, Mom, you won't believe it. It worked. I went, well, yeah, we did that with you for <laughs> a decade. Why wouldn't it work? But um, some parents and some of your Sabbath schools, may need, you may need to train your parents. Now, we also, when I was growing up, we did not get to have money to, much dessert. And Sabbath morning was donut morning at our house growing up because we never, you never got donuts. You never, this was oatmeal every morning for breakfast but for some reason my dad liked to go to the local donut shop and he'd pick up fresh donuts and that was our sabbath morning treat so when my children are big enough and they have teeth and they're ready to to have that special breakfast that i grew up with i got them donuts boy was that a huge mistake that was a bad routine we did that one time because then they started bouncing off the church walls. That was terrible. I thought, my brother and I never did that. But different generation. So, no, it was back to oatmeal on Sabbath morning for breakfast and, and none of that wild behavior. We also learned something else. that, And this, again, for you Sabbath school teachers and parents. Between Sabbath school and church, we learned that we needed to take our, our sons for a walk outside winter summer didn't matter they needed a fresh air walk so they could sit through church they needed at least 10 minutes to get the wiggles out run around and we were telling our son that story do you remember dad used to always walk you out around the the whole block of the church and his problem is the little girl has all her wiggles at sabbath school can't sit down can't stay focused and and she gets no sugar so last week Two weeks ago, they got her up at 7 and took her out to the park for a long walk. Said, Mom, that really helped. 
It's like she wanted to be carried a lot. And we said, no, 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 this is so you'll sit in Sabbath school. But some of our parents don't understand that and they're not looking. They're giving their children sugar. They're getting their children to bed late and they're not giving them some exercise before they come to our Sabbath school classes. And then they wonder why the children can't sit and focus. And those are all little things that, you know, in your kind way, you can kind of teach your Sabbath school leaders so that the children are in a good routine and they're at Sabbath school. If they're up at seven o'clock taking a walk, they're at Sabbath school by 9.30, if that's when your Sabbath school starts. And man, Sabbath school is only an hour for most of us. And I don't want to lose any of that hour because for some of the children, that's the only hour of Jesus they get all week. And especially if you have beginners in kindergarten, talk about family worship and really promote that with your families. Don't let your children learn to be helpless. So what are some things to do instead of having our children do it? What are some of the things we do instead of having our children do it for our, themselves? My granddaughter will come and say, Can you, would you get my sandal on? And so being grandmother, I'm putting her sandal on and her mother says she can do that herself. Okay, show me how you can do it. I'm still involved in getting that sandal on, but now she's showing me how she can do it, and I'm not making her be helpless. And our children can do more and more things than we think they can. Um, okay, so do we spoon feed them or let them feed themselves? When my children were, sons were growing up, I, I let them feed themselves. I made sure that they were on something that wasn't carpet and that you know, bath time came after supper and I could take the high chair outside and hose it off, but I did not want to have to constantly be feeding them. And I catch myself doing that with the granddaughter going, why don't you take the fork? I put the beans on the fork for you. <laughs> you take the fork. So are we doing that? Are we cleaning their bedrooms for them? Now, this is, this is my in-laws right here. And I learned early on that if I said to my sons, your grandparents are coming to visit, that room was clean. I, on the other hand, could say, clean your room. You need to clean your room. Your room really needs to be cleaned up. And there would be a less than heartfelt attempt, but it wouldn't get clean. But if I said, grandmother will be here in an hour, I didn't have to say anything else. I could say, grandmother will be here in an hour. And the boys would disappear into their room. And the room would be clean when they were done. And all grandmother had to do was come in and say, oh, your room looks so good. Oh, I love how you made your bed. Oh, look how you got all the wrinkles out of your bed. Oh, your clothes are all hanging up nicely. And oh, you don't have any piles of clothes. I'm so proud of you. And I'm over here going, I can say the same thing. I can say those exact same words and they just kind of, but if their grandmother would come in, they would do anything. For a while she lived eight hours away and so they kind of dawdled at cleaning up their room. But then when they, they were only an hour away, things, and we would call and say, you need to come for a visit. <laughs> because it sure beat us having to fight with the kids to clean up their room. But the spirit of prophecy tells us that we should be working with our children. And so we work with our children to clean up their rooms, but we need to explain to them what a clean room looks like. 
Um, this last Friday, I went to the farmer's market with my daughter-in-law and granddaughter, and oh, it was such a beautiful food, a wonderful time. And on the way back, I said, oh, you were so well behaved. And then her mother went on to explain what well-behaved looked like at the farmer's market. You held our hand, you didn't touch everything, you stayed with us, you didn't beg for things. You were so good, we, you made sure that you didn't run into people. I thought, excellent, you're telling her exactly what it looks like, good behavior. And that's what we need to do with our children. We need to tell them not just you're being good, you're, we're needing to say what that good looks like. What does it look like if you're good? And that's part of the routines that we're going to talk about. Some other things we might uh, take their laundry to the washing machine. They can carry their, their dirty clothes or put them in the laundry basket. We shouldn't have to pick up their dirty stuff off the floor. As soon as the child can bend over and pick something up, teach them where you want their dirty clothes to go. Or if their clothes are still clean, where do you want them to go until you can get them folded? Or by the age of two, you should start teaching them how to fold some things. Now, um, if you're obsessive and compulsive disorder, that's not gonna work for you because things are not lined up square and it wouldn't be the way you would do it. And I had a couple students last year in 10th grade who could never, when I dump out all the clean dish towels and say we need to fold these and put them away from when we've picked hot, fixed hot lunch, the precision had to be just so. Your children are not gonna do that at age two, but they can fold it and they can help put it away. When my granddaughter spills something on the floor, she knows what, what drawer to go to in my kitchen and what towel to get out and to mop it up with and how to stand on the water to, to get it to absorb into the towel. Those are all learned behaviors, but you know, I'm sorely tempted to just do it myself because I can do it faster and three other towels don't fall out on the floor. <laughs> but what happens, I'm teaching her helplessness if I do that. And we've got to teach our children not to be helpless. Um, cleaning up their spills, yep, they can do that. Uh, you have to determine how much you value your plates as to what you're going to let them do. Uh, my granddaughter takes certain things to the sink when she eats at my house. There are other things that um, I follow right behind her, you know. <laughs> and I have certain dishes that we always use when they come over. And I said, this is because I really want a new set of dishes and she can break whatever she wants. <laughs> to her mother, not to her. And the child hasn't broken a thing yet, and I still have those dishes. Um, to make their beds. And again, we have to talk through what a good made bed is. We need to go through the steps. We need to describe it to them. We need to work with them, but not do it for them as soon as they're able to follow directions. They might only be able to pull a little bit on the sheet, but they still should be helping us do those things. Cleaning their desk, um, and we have to tell them what a clean desk looks like if we're teachers or homeschooling parents. You're gonna really wanna make sure that their desks stay clean. And, and sometimes I have drawn a map for students to show them how to put their books in their desk. Unfortunately, that only works with the kids who keep clean desks. The rest have no clue still. 
Whoops. Well, that did something unexpected. All right. So sharpen their pencils. I sharpened the pencils for you today, but then I don't know if there'd be a pencil sharpener here or what might happen. But when your children come home and they have schoolwork to do, make them sharpen their own pencils. Make them have a place for their things at your house. Set aside a special place for all of their school supplies because as a teacher, over and over, I didn't have any pencils, I couldn't do my schoolwork. I didn't have any paper, I couldn't do my schoolwork. <sighs> that is an excuse that doesn't work, you know. Well, you knew I had pencils here for you at school, I had paper here for you at school. You can take it home and do your work or you can not do it, that's your choice. But instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll give you another day. Now, when a child comes home and tells me, you know, I was at prayer meeting last night, and then I had to take care of my little sister, and then she was sick during the night, and I didn't get up early. Okay, I'm going to give you a little, cut you a little slack on that one. There are some genuine reasons why a, a child might not get their schoolwork done, but if they're faithfully getting it done every night, they're not going to have tons to do. If they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing during the school day, they're not going to have a lot of homework. If your child starts coming home and saying they have lots of homework, go talk to the teacher and find out what they're doing in class. So that's causing them, because there are children who will come home with tons of homework, and the parent, one of the parents came and talked to me and said, you're sending too much schoolwork home. And I'm thinking about, what am I sending home? She has to do all of her math every evening. We have an hour and a half for math every day. She's doing it at school. What? You know, I want the kids to do the things at school because I want to help them. And with the math series we use now, parents can't help because the vocabulary is totally different. Same math, different approach. So she shouldn't have that much schoolwork. And I'm talking to the girl and saying, are you taking this home? Well, she always made sure she didn't do some things at school because she wanted to visit with friends. That's the number one thing to not get things done. But she also, if she had schoolwork, she got out of household chores. So she always made sure to bring an hour's worth of work in her mind home and tell her parents she had to do her schoolwork. And so she didn't have to do the dishes or help with the laundry or help vacuum or anything. She got out of all of that. But the parents, as we are, you know, I'm asking her about these questions, it's all coming out. The reason she's having so much schoolwork. And the father just looked at me and went, well, that ends today. So uh, if, if your children are bringing home a lot of school stuff, find out why. Go talk to the teacher. It's, it's, kids do all kinds of funny things, and, and they're pretty smart. Yeah. They're very smart, and they come up with a lot of stuff, too. But have a supply area for them. Even if you're not homeschooling them, have a special spot with everything. Then, and your routines for homework. Um, my, my sons used to do their homework at the kitchen table while I was fixing supper because I could keep my eyes on them. They could ask questions. And I could make sure that they were not fooling around because a lot of them will say, oh, I worked three hours on homework last night. And they were really goofing around for two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but 
but then I'm there to answer any questions that they might have. And I was their teacher, too, part of the time. When my younger son got into seventh grade, I no longer knew all of his assignments every day. And one night at bedtime, it was time to turn out the light at 8 o'clock. Oh, Mom, I have a science test tomorrow. I need your help to study for. All right, we sat down and we studied for his science test, and I said, don't you ever do that again. You come as soon as school's out, and you tell me what you need my help with with your homework, and I will fit it in before bedtime, because if you ever do this again, you're going to fail your science test because I'm not going to let you stay up late. But I have parents who keep their kids up way late into the night. And children need that routine of sleep. My sons went to bed at between 8 and 8.30 until they were in ninth grade. And when it got light outside and it was their bedtime, said, I'm sorry, but I know what happens and I know what your brain needs and I want you to be successful and you can be upset with me, but my role as your mother is you need to get your sleep. Now, I have learned since then that children only grow when they're sleeping. And we may have overdone it a little bit because our youngest child is six foot five <laughs> and our older one is six foot eight. So maybe, maybe we gave them too much sleep. Anyway, but sleep is important. It's just like not letting your kids have anything with caffeine. That stunts growth. That gets in the way of children sleeping. And children have got to get their sleep. One of the biggest problems in schools today is sleep-deprived children. They come in to school without having a good nine to ten hours of sleep. And that, you may find that very shocking, but all the research that I have come across says children need between ten and twelve hours of sleep. Okay, if we back that off to nine to ten, that's probably still more than most of them are getting. and. And research says that for the, the hour before they go to bed, they shouldn't have any screen time. That would be no television, no iPad, no cell phone, because that disrupts the sleep cycle. They're even saying now we need to be careful about when we let children have access to technology. My granddaughter would have dove into my purse and gotten out the phone and answered it for me at two and a half. She knows how to FaceTime. I'm not sure I know how to. But every time her Uncle Adam calls, she can get his picture on, her on my phone. Like, how did you do that? Mm -hmm. um, but we have to be careful with the screen time that we let children have. We've, we, we're finding out more and more how careful we need to be. And even up to age 12, we need to be super careful about how much, you know, there's all these really neat games on iPads and um, surfaces. We need to be very careful because children are losing their fine motor skills because they're not doing some of the things that we're needing to learn to do. And we're learning that because we've seen some of the mistakes that we've made. But we need to get our children the rest they need. We need to get them to have breakfast, a good breakfast, um, limit their sugar intake. It's, it, it, parents who send kids to school without their breakfast are like starting a race with an empty gas tank. That child can't, and then they want to know how come their child is failing. Okay, until lunchtime, 
they can't think, they can't focus, they're tired and they're hungry. And, and you need to feed them. Now, me, uh, 10 o'clock, I believe strongly in second breakfast. I would have lunch at 10 o'clock if I could, because then I, I'm fine, you know, till six. So I understand hungry in the middle of the morning, but we gotta make sure our kids are getting a good breakfast and spread the word on that. The number one thing you can do for your child to be successful in school is get them a good night's sleep every night consistently, including Friday nights and Saturday nights, and get them a good breakfast. That's going to take away a lot of the problems that you might have them dealing with at school. If your child has problems at school, those are the two main reasons we see, um, because they're tired and hungry and they're grumpy. When I'm tired and hungry, I'm grumpy too. And if it was both of us, we'd be in bad shape. Um, children can learn to clean off their desktops, whether you're homeschooling or, or at school or Sabbath school, they can learn to clean things up. And you can, they can learn to carry their own books. There are many times we have um, pre-kindergartners at the Lansing School and kindergartners and their parents would come in carrying their backpack. And I'm thinking, what is in a kindergartner's backpack that's so heavy their parent needs to carry it? And um, they would put their coats on for them and zip them up and unzip them and hang up their clothes for the coats for them. I'm thinking, they're five years old or four years old. How come they're not doing that themselves? Again, are we training helplessness? And I do watch parents train their children to be helpless. There are children who will come in and because their parents have always put their coat on and winter coat on and taken it all off and hung it up, they don't know how to do that when they come to school. And they'll say, I need help with my coat. I'll say, okay, what do you need help with? I need help putting it on. All right, well, where are you stuck? I don't know what to do. Well, you're going to take this arm and put it through that sleeve. Give it a try. First time they ever put a coat on by themselves, but you talk them through that. And then you always have to say, why is the coat on the floor? Well, I took it off. But where does it go? You have a locker, hang it up. But if their parents are around, that's never done. It's always done for them. And I've even had third and fourth graders whose parents are still doing that. And that's, you know, they're not going to do it for me. I, I tell the parents, you know, they can do this without you. They, we don't do this for our students. We'll help them be successful, but we're not going to do it for them. And don't overhelp with homework. This is another place where children learn to be helpless. Is parents, I've had parents in first, second, third grade who do the work for their child. Then when they get to sixth grade, the child couldn't do the work and neither could the parent because the child never had learned to do it. Mom and dad always did it for them. And now the vocabulary's changed, the requirements are changed and the kid can't do it for themselves because they've never had to listen because mom was always going to do it for them. They have learned to be helpless and that then comes as a really big blow about sixth grade, which is where I see where what I've been suspicious of all those years, now I see was reality and mom was doing the homework and now there's too much to do and the child can't do it at school because mom's been doing it all the time. This is for teachers. Don't give them the answers to the questions. Help them figure out the answers. Help them learn how to answer the question for themselves. It's so much easier to just tell them the answer. 
than to teach them how to find the answer for themselves. This is really, I, I'm so glad I trained them in as fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders to find their own answer. Because as ninth and tenth graders, they come to me with questions I don't know the answer to. And they'll come and say, ask me a question, I go, let's see, how should we approach that answer? I'm going, I have no idea. I hope they do. And they'll name off two or three things because they've been trained to do that. Go, okay, why don't you check on that? And, and if they really get stuck, I'll look it up on my phone. But, you know, sometimes it's so fun. Sometimes we come across in our reading about a musical instrument we've never heard of. I can just pull that up on my phone and show them a picture and play it, have it play the song and they can see it being played. That's pretty exciting for a teacher who used to have to go to find the encyclopedia and look it up, and I have no idea how this sounds, but now we can. So there are some things I'm going to, we were just studying something this year on medieval history, and we'd come up with some things, and I'm going, I have no idea what that is. Let's look that up. Well, I did that a couple times, and then we'd go, Mr. Shaw, we don't know what this is. Would you look it up on your phone for us? Oh, great, I'm teaching. But I am teaching them that we don't have to know everything. Mm -hmm. And how can we find it? And right now, looking stuff up on our phones is a pretty rapid way of finding some answers. If we come across a word we're not sure of, we went through the great controversy with ninth and 10th grade this year, reading it aloud for part of our world history class. And for that little lady with a third grade education, um, I'm not sure what some of those words are. I have a master's degree. And so we come across the word and we're looking at it and I say, okay, you go on, I'm checking this out on my phone. And I, you know, you can play it so that it, the sound and you can hear it pronounced and I go, oh, neat, that's what this word is. My students just laugh at me. And the ninth and 10th graders are laughing with love and not evil. But they, they understand that I might not know everything. But the important thing is, how do, can I find the answer? Or where can I go to to get the answer? And we need to help train our children to do that so they're not helpless. Um, we need to not jump to all their demands. There is nothing more, than a ch more unhappy than a child with a want. And as a grandparent, I want to solve all of their miseries. As a parent, you want to solve all of their miseries. Even as a teacher, I want to solve all of their miseries. And I just can't do it. And we need to understand that we're, we don't want to teach them to be helpless. We want to help them be successful and be able to help care for themselves. We also shouldn't have our children make life choices we should be making the life choices. I don't want to go to Sabbath school today. That's a life choice. I'm going to make it. I have more, more information, more skill, more knowledge than you do. Um, I don't want to do my math, okay? That's another life skill that I need to, to teach you. So I, I took a long division plan because this is, this is an easy one. All of you understand that long division is complicated. Um, some of us do long division just for fun, but I realize we're in a vast minority. But one of the things we need to do is make sure that a child has a clear understanding of what's expected of them. 
So if I were to teach them long division, I would make sure to give them a diagram. And then I would review the steps. Maybe that I'm teaching them how to make their bed. Maybe I'm teaching them how to write their name. I'm going to go over and over those steps. I'm going to give them a model that they can follow and that they'll have something to look at before they try to do that on their own. But that's, let's take it even a step further. Now I'm going to break down the assignment into, into the little parts of it. This is the first step. This is, we're going to compare, you know, is it less than or greater than or the same as. We're going to then divide. We're going to then have to multiply and then subtract and then we're going to compare again and then we're going to bring down. We broke every step of a long division problem down into the whole problem was broken into steps. We can do that for them for um, break their assignments, projects, jobs, tasks into steps. We can break down how to make a bed into steps. We can make down how to clean the room into steps. We can even draw a diagram of what a clean room looks like. And then leave this, if I was teaching long division, I would, I would cut that out and tape it down to their desk so that they always had it right in front of them. And then when I would come to help them, I could say, hmm, where is it you're having a problem? Instead of starting right back at the very beginning. <coughs> All right. So if you had a problem and, and it was this step was where they were getting stuck, they were getting stuck at pulling their bed spread up on their bed. You're trying to teach them to make your bed. They're getting stuck where to put in their social studies book in their desk because that's such a big, ungainly book. You would back up to the step at right ahead of where they got frustrated, review it, and then go on to explain what it is they need to do next. And then the tough thing is you leave. You don't just hover around them. And as a mom and a grandmother and a teacher, I hover. And I got to be careful of that because I, have, I don't want to create helpless children. So if they're stuck, mom, I can't get my clothes hung up. Oh, okay, uh, what's the problem? It won't stick on the hanger. Well, let's give it a try. It'd be so much easier to go, oh, let me do this for you, honey. All, all done. Instead of saying, this is how we do it. This is, oh, look, you did it yourself because we want them to have learning mindsets. We don't want them to be stuck in a non-learning mindset. We want them to continue to be learners. We can even break down something as simple as how to carry a chair for a kindergartner. That this is what it looks like when you carry your chair. Think a kindergartner can understand that? Yes, they can. And uh, you do have, when you, you would think, okay, we're gonna take our chairs to the gym for a special assembly. You would think that that would be a very easy command, but no, 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 you have to go through the steps and you have to go through them over and over and over and over and over. And you think, what is wrong with these children? And then you hear them getting after other people who aren't doing it right. Okay. They listen, they just didn't learn. And then, again, don't spend lots of time going over what a chi child needs to do quick review, give them a clue, and leave. So parents, if, if your child doesn't want to eat breakfast, and you come over here and you go, hmm, you're halfway through your cereal, why don't you take another bite of cereal, that would be really good, and then you leave. 
You're not there going, oh, please, honey, eat your cereal. Oh, please, please do that for a grandmother, please. No. Um, the same with the kids want you to hover and give them all the time and attention. And we don't, we don't want to create helpless children. We love them too much. This is an amazing thing. You see it, you say it, you do it, and you repeat. You see, you show them how to make your bed, their bed. You say how to make the bed. You have them do the making of the bed. And then you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it. But it's important that they see what it is they need to do to say that we give them verbal instructions and that they, they do it. You know, we have people who learn by hearing. We have people who learn by seeing. And we have people who learn by doing. Think about what your greatest strength is. I own something if I can do it. I'm less likely to learn something if I hear it, and I'm okay if I see it. We have children who fall into all those categories, and if you keep going through the see, say, do steps and repeat them, you're going to get success more often. But it is in a loop. It's over and over and over and over again. Just because your child doesn't learn it on the first time doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. Sometimes I would wonder, but it's over and over and over and over and then they catch it and then they don't need you anymore and then you're on to teaching them something else let's talk about standing in line this that, just to give you a clue I was at a teacher in service once and the speaker was saying you know some children don't know how to stand in line I went, uh-huh uh-huh got them in my school and it's because we don't teach them. I teach them all the time how to stand in line. And then he went through the steps of what it is to stand in line. That's my big mistake. I am not being clear enough with my instructions. Now, if you're at, at a school teacher or you just, you, you don't let them come down the hall. I was still doing this in May with the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And part of it is we'd had a student teacher the first half of the year, and so we, and a part of it is I didn't have them all the time. But it would be line up, and I'd go through all the, what lining up looks like, and then we'd start down the hall, and they'd start talking, and then I'd go, and they'd have to go back. And it was always somewhere fun, like to the computer lab or to art class or to PE. So I, I just not feel really bad at all about sending them back and said, okay, I'll wait until you're ready. We'll try again. Because this is what happens when you go through those steps. The peer group takes care of it. I don't have to scold or rant or rave or do anything because all of their friends are going, I want to go to PE, I want to go to recess, I want to go to art, I want art class. We're headed for computers, how come we're still here? They take care of all of that and usually it's just a couple times and you can then go on and have, um, a good time but we do need to give detail detailed directions and walking in line was one of the ones where I was not giving enough details I would say line up in a straight line and be quiet oh no 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 we got to be more specific than that um, when you stand in line there's no touching anyone I thought that was a given but no if you don't say it they'll do it 
uh, you need to stand so one head is right behind the other. When I look down the line, I should just see one continuous head. Uh, oh, I didn't know, you know, get that kind of reaction from them. Uh, we're going to walk silently down the hall. That would be no talking, no whistling, no singing, just silent. Silent means your mouth is closed. If you're breathing kind of loud, I'm okay with that, but don't, just don't let me hear it. And um, you can't pass anybody in, in line. You can't walk side by side. And, and there shouldn't be any big gaps in the line. You need to stay about this far from the person ahead of you, not so that they can hear you breathing or you step on their feet. And um, don't touch anything except the hand railing. And I, I was teaching fifth and sixth grade at the time, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to come. And I said, okay, let's line up. And then I said, I realize why we're having such trouble with our line. I have not been clear. And when I got all done going through those steps, it was, nobody ever told us that. If only we had known, we would have done this like this years ago. But I had to do it for the next month before they really caught on. Now, let, we've talked about making the bed because cleaning up the room is an important thing for a child to do. And making the bed is the first thing they ought to do in the morning because once you've done that, you've already done something hard. And so you can get on with your day. So if we were to make, whoops, if we were to make the bed, um, we want to check and make sure the bottom's all tucked in and you talk it through and you have them see it and you have them do it. We want to smooth the top sheet out across the top. We want to bring up the blankets and get all the wrinkles out of it. We want to um, bring up the bedspread and smooth it out. We want to bring the bedspread up over the pillow. And you might have to do this over and over with your child until they're able to do it for themselves. And if they're two, you're probably going to keep doing it for a while because their arms aren't long enough. But again, the spirit of prophecy tells us we should be working with our children. It does not say we should be working for our children. But she does say we should work with our children. So um, one of my jobs of, as principal at Lansing was to get there early enough to shovel the sidewalks, shovel the driveway. And at the end of the day, you know, Michigan, it snows, and so I need to shovel out at the end of the day. But by the end of the day, there were always two or three boys who would come and take the shovel out of my hand and do it for me. Because I was out there doing it, and, and they knew I wasn't just forcing them to do something I wouldn't do myself. Even in the morning, um, a, there was one fellow who would show up early some morning saying, thought you might need help with pushing the snow. Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of great kids are those? But again, it was teaching them what does shoveling look like and, and being willing to work with them on that. We want to be able to work with our kids on, on these things. So our roles. Who's in charge of your house, your classroom, your Sabbath school program? This is really important. You need to be the one in charge. And be very careful because a lot of times we can say things that will hurt us. Words hurt, and, and they come back and cut our own throat. And the best thing that I have found to do is to pray without ceasing. Lord, please put the words in my mouth that you want me to say. Please grant me patience when I need to have patience, but persistence when I need to have persistence. Please help 
help me to only say and do the right things and I'm still going to make mistakes. And you know, when you apologize to the students, they understand. And again, you're going with that relationship, roles, routines, and relationships. The stronger your relationship is with a child, the more they're going to be forgiving you your mistakes, and, and all of us are going to make mistakes. But if we have that strong relationship, if they truly believe that we have their best interest in mind, then when we make those mistakes, they're forgiving. They're very forgiving. I don't want to have to nag the kids all the time. I, I hate nagging children. This is Evelyn. She goes to visit her 91-year-old great-grandfather once a week and has lunch with him. It may be because she always gets hot chocolate those days, of which she guards carefully, which is why she's looking over her cup, um, making sure grandmother does not take her hot chocolate away. And then Percy's just learned to raise himself up. But I don't want to nag these kids. I want to make sure, I, I, as a teacher, I didn't want to be the one nagging them. As a parent, oh, I don't want to nag them to do things. I expect them to obey, and they know that expectation. For instance, when I come into the classroom, I'll say, okay, I need your desk cleared off. Oh, good, you clear off your desk, and look at you, and oh, you're sitting so nicely. Again, giving instructions as to what it looks like the way I want it. When I come in, I want you to have your pencil and paper on your desk, and I want to be able to start. And I can come in and say, all right. <gasps> Most of the kids, that will work perfectly. You do have some attention deficit disorder children who have no idea what you're talking about. And you have to give them a little extra help. It truly is a chemical imbalance in the brain. Um, some, some children are helped through medication to get that chemistry back in balance. I used to say never, I never wanted to give kids drugs. And then the more research that's been done on it and the more understanding we get onto it. Um, one parent did put it off for years um, and finally took the child to the doctor and said, I think they might have ADD. And they gave them a mild dose of something and the child said, Mom, the noise is gone, finally. For years, this child had been battling some kind of noise in their brain so that they couldn't hear and they couldn't concentrate and they couldn't focus. And that one drug shut the noise off and, oh, I can hear what the teacher's saying. Oh, I can concentrate. That child went from straight C's to straight A's. And so now I'm not so don't do drugs, try and do it naturally. There is chemical imbalances. You do need to get to the doctor and find out. And if one thing doesn't work, there's about 20 different things. Try something that does, but don't give up on your kids if that happens. And we don't know what happens. It's not bad parenting. It's not bad teaching. It's not bad genetics. It just happens to some kids. And we're blessed that we know more and more what we can do. So avoid... Um, reinforcing helplessness. Think about how you want your class, your home, your program to function. Look at your classroom, your child's bedroom or Sabbath school room and the layout of them. Um, let me tell you, this classroom in here, absolute worst teaching layout possible. This would, I, my classroom would never look like this. I'm sure it looks like this for camping. I'm hoping it doesn't look like this for school, but we need to be looking at how is our relationship 
with people and I can't even get to you. You're clear over there. And, and if you were being a problem in the far back corner, I couldn't get to you. And the best classroom management and the best parenting is by proximity. I mean, this group had no problems in the front row whatsoever. But man, it's kind of hard to get all the way back here. And you guys are fantastic, you know. I, I always would love to import you. But look what I have to do to try and answer your question or get to you. Sometimes we set up our classrooms like that. Sometimes we um, set up the kid's bedroom in a way that's not going to function well for them being able to keep it clean. We need to look at it and say, okay, what are my priorities? What do I need to see? Is their bed in such a way that they're not going to be distracted? Do I have too much stuff on the wall that's going to keep them up at night? I just love to put stuff all over the walls. I just, you know, this is wonderful. I see all these neat pictures up here. But for a child, is that going to be too distracting? What are you going to have in the room? Are all their toys just sitting by their bed? Oh, that's going to be really um, distracting at bedtime when you can imagine all the things you want to play with. And in our Sabbath school rooms, we need to be careful how we set them up because I've, I've visited a lot of Sabbath school rooms and it's, it, you know, children's Sabbath schools do not get the best rooms in the building. They frequently have some column in the middle of it. So then, you know, if you have a kid who's on the back side of the column, they can't see. But what they really think is you can't see them, and then they're doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing. So you've got to set up away from that. Some Sabbath school rooms have windows, and I see them set up facing the windows. Well, that's not going to be very helpful to them focusing on you. There are Sabbath school classrooms that set up towards the door. So everybody coming in and out, that's, that's where their focus is. So if this was my classroom, all of this would be on that back wall because that's where all the distractions aren't. And then anybody coming in late to class doesn't disrupt my entire class by, you know, well, I'm here, you know, aren't you lucky? But let, let's just take some of this concept real quick in our next couple minutes. You can see that if I was right here helping her, the person on the far side of the room could be doing whatever they wanted and I'm helping her and can't see what's going on over there. And um, just a horrible room arrangement because that puts me a long walk to get to whatever problem might be going over in the far corner. This is a much better room arrangement. And, the, and what we are looking for is is setting up tracks through the room because going that route I can get to everybody I can I can just keep going around and around and I can talk to everybody through the whole class and answer questions if I need to do that now when I was in China and teaching teachers last July I showed them that the room was set up like this and I said okay we're gonna change it we're gonna set it up like that and so for the next two weeks, that's how I taught. I was able to walk around, even though everything was through a translator. In China, they have to learn how to speak. They take English in school. English is taught. And so I could always tell who could understand some English because they would laugh before the translation of the joke. Mm -hmm. And I could, there were, there were two boys. I knew that, that they were problems in school. Now they're teachers. But I knew that I needed to stand somewhere over close to those two young men 
Otherwise, they would be goofing off, even as teachers. Can you believe it? And so I ask them, you know, the closer you are to the student, the less likely they are. I don't have to do anything. All, all, I, all you have to do is get it within six feet of them, and they straighten up. It's that whole proximity. So in Sabbath school, same thing, proximity. Set up your Sabbath schools without distractions, and then where can you get to somebody um, easily? Like in early teens, we would only have one row because when we had two rows, the second row would distract the first row. Mm -hmm. You know, in juniors, we would always move them. They would sit, you know, in a semicircle, but then we always move them to a table for a Bible study. Even if it meant, you know, we move out the chairs, we move in the table, we move back the chairs, just to have something to put their Bible on, to put their quarterly on so that we could study. So think about how you would want to set up your room because that's gonna be very important to your success. How, how might we consider arranging a child's classroom? What might we do to set up the, the room? Keep in mind your role. You're the leader, you're the teacher, you're the parent. Routines are very important. It's good for you to be able to get into those routines, Sabbath school routines, bedtime routines, getting up routines. And it's important for you as Sabbath school teachers to always be there early, to have your room ready to go ahead of time, because what you're doing as the children come in is building a relationship with them, not scrambling to get everything ready. And that can be a challenge. And maybe you have to stay after church on Sabbath to rearrange the room so it's ready to go for you the next week. Um, I've never been in a church that left my classroom alone, so it was getting there early in the morning so that I could make sure it's ready. But we have one goal that we have, and that's creating childhoods with Jesus. And we want our boys and girls to be focused heavenward, whether they're at school, at home, at church. But if we're all working together and keeping our focus there, the Lord is going to lead us. The Lord's going to put things in our mind. The Lord's going to send somebody to give us that one thing of, oh, I need to be more specific in telling my students how to line up. Life-changing moment for me and for them. So I'm hoping that you got at least one thing out of our time together today and that your life is going to be better. I'm going to go ahead and have a closing prayer, and then we have a couple minutes if you want to have some questions. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your time with us, for your caring for us, for letting us be your children. And as we go forward into the day, into our lives, Lord, please put in our hearts and minds what will lead others towards you. In your name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.